Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you a talk by Ruby Vittorino Moody that took place at the Duke of York in Salisbury on the 22nd of August 2019 as part of the Salisbury History Festival, entitled Down Among the Dead Men, The Executions at Fisherton. This is a talk about some of the people who died on Fisherton Gallows and the background to their crimes. It's not a talk about the courts, uh, statistics, Fisherton Jail, nor the execution methods, but I've got to begin by telling you briefly about all these things so that you can better understand what these hanged men lived through in their last days on earth. So all of my stories take place um, in the period 1828 to 1832, but not in that order. And it's important to remember the thinking behind the death sentence at that time. So, of course, it's a punishment, but it wasn't looked upon so much as a punishment, but more as a deterrent. And the judges continually remarked on this. So to quote the 18th century politician George Saville, um, men are not hanged for stealing horses, but that horses may not be stolen. And that's a really important thing to, to remember. And also that they didn't see execution as something so barbaric as we do today because um, the people were really religious and they sincerely believed that a prisoner might, if he truly repented in the time he had left, he would go to heaven after death. So that's, again, something that um, they, the judge always remarked on. They saw it more as a transition. Um, so that's a picture of the criminal register. And I don't think that, uh, I think it's a bit faint, you wouldn't be able to read it. But um, by 1800, there were 220 crimes which carried the death penalty in England. And, uh, but a lot of them were just were theft, arson or murder. And they made them up into different categories. So it was the same crime, but they divided them. Um, if the jury found someone guilty beyond reasonable doubt, then the sentence that was required was death. So the judge had no choice in that matter. However, in reality, a huge number had a reprieve granted by the king and a lesser sentence, which was often transportation. So what I'm going to say is that in the period of 1735 to 1799 in Wiltshire, 468 people were given the death sentence, but only 147 were actually hanged. So reprieves became the business of the Home Secretary after Queen Victoria came to the throne because it wasn't considered seemly for such a young woman to have something to do with crimes and executions. In 1823, the law was altered to give the judge the power to give a lesser sentence, except for treason or murder. So the juries were still obliged to give the death sentence, and that sentence had to be recorded in the criminal register. So if um, you could... I, I don't think you can read it, but it would say death, 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 death down there. And then in here, 
is what the sentence actually was that they actually got. So, so uh, it was uh, commuted to things like transport, um, transportation or prison for a certain time. In the middle column, let me show that, you would have things like not guilty and no bill. No bill is something I'll explain in a minute. So, capital um, crimes were reduced by two-thirds in 1861, and were in, in 1832, in 1861 were reduced to only five. And the people who I'm going to talk about are those who are highlighted in yellow. So, they are at the bottom, and you can see there was a great many crimes. There were a lot more people who were hanged before that period. It was, it, it was greatly reduced as time went on in the 19th century. There were actually only two women on that list, because 19th century judges didn't like hanging women. Uh, also, if you could see the dates, and I think it's too small, you would see that all the executions took place in much the same period of the year, and that's because the crimes were judged at the Court of Assizes, uh, which came to Salisbury at Lent and in the summer. So judges moved around on a circuit to each co uh, county, and we were on the Western Circuit. So they came from Winchester, then moved <coughs> on to Dorchester, and the judges were, uh, the jurors were local. And uh, the judges, when they came here to Salisbury, they usually stayed actually in Salisbury close. And um, I think uh, at Hungerford Chantry. And they walked across the town to the Guild Hall, accompanied by um, uh, guards who were dressed up in black and white with big staves originally. And uh, there was a grand jury of 23 of the uh, most important citizens of the town, so that's a grand jury there, who were expected to sift the evidence, to call witnesses, and find out as much as they could about the background to a case. Because, you know, now the jury are not supposed to, to know anything. <laughs> but it was, very, it was very different then. So the grand jury was supposed to know as much as they could about a case and to find out if there was enough evidence to indict or not. If there was, then they had a bill of indictment and they put it to trial. And at the trial it was judged by a normal jury, um, which they called a petit jury, which was drawn from the electoral roll. If it wasn't, then it was written in the register. We, we just, uh, I did point out, it was written no bill and that meant they didn't find enough uh, evidence to go on for a trial. So those found guilty and left for execution were taken back to Fisherton Jail. So all the executions which I'm looking at tonight uh, took place at a platform erected for that purpose on the flat roof over the jail gate. Before that, executions mainly took place on a bit of ground which um, is at the bottom of Devizes Road and Wilton Road. It's behind, uh, it's usually behind a bit of metal gate. You won't be able to see it, so I got in and took a photo of it <laughs> for you. And um, 
uh, that was up, they were executed there up until 1796, and after that, at the old jail, which took, uh, which it stood where the clock, uh, clock tower, where Weatherspoons is, in Salisbury. So, so the new county jail, which is the one which I'm interested in, is the one which stood at St Paul's Roundabout now. And this is what it looked like. So, <coughs> you can see, this is Devizes Road, Wilton Road. This is the count where the county jail stood. And this is today, you can see St Paul's Roundabout. And that's the historic environment record. And the place of the, of the jail laid over the top of it. <coughs> so if you look at the first one you can see um, that they're fields they're all fields all the way around all of that so that's how they got so many people standing there because executions would draw enormous crowds I mean there's reports of 10,000 to 15,000 people that, uh, that came to an execution seeking entertainment. And there'd be rituals and a ceremony, a procession. Ruby, would that be more than the people in Salisbury at the time? I'm afraid I don't know what the population of Salisbury was at the time. All I can say is I, I saw um, Ken Smith's wife today and we were talking about how horrible it is that people came to these ex um, executions. But actually in developing countries they still do. But while I was doing this research I came across um, something which is quite horrible. I came across a few things. And in America whenever there's an execution apparently... They get loads and loads of letters from people asking if they can come to the execution. I think that if they were to have a public execution, that there would be people horribly that would that would go there. Anyway, just to say how they could get that number of people around, it's because Ruby, Fisherton I, Jail was in there. I just give a little bit of information, I would think around the, the late 18th century the population sort of wouldn't be much more than about 5,000. Right. So you're talking two to three times the population. Yeah, the so they come in from yeah. all the villages, all the yeah. other towns, they everywhere. Are they? You'd yeah. have to repeat that so people would hear it. So, <laughs> so the population of Salisbury at the time was only about 5,000 and there's 15,000, 10,000 to 15,000 people coming to an execution. So that means they were coming in from all the different, from the villages and the other towns coming in to, to see an, uh, somebody killed, basically. So this is, um, this is what's left of the, the prison now. You can still see there's a window there, which is around the back of Gas Lane. There's a couple of windows. And if you look up at the top right, there's a picture from the old jailhouse, and you can see where those windows came from, from all the jail buildings. And uh, down there in the bottom right was the governor's house, Mr William and Mar uh, William Dowding and his wife Mary. I think, the, uh, I think the governor actually had a house within 
the jail ground to begin with, and that must have been built afterwards, but it was the governor's house. Anyhow, to go back to these, <laughs> to go back to these executions, uh, there would be lots of uh, hawkers singing, selling uh, food, songs, people picnicking, and I don't know if you went to. Let's have a look. That, that's above the gate. There's that. We'll go, I'll go back to the other slide in a minute. Um, if you went to Hudson's Field when they had the Kaiser Chiefs and you saw all those people and that, uh, that sort of great party, everybody there, that's what it was like, except it wasn't a professional band playing. <laughs> uh, it was a bewildered human being, often a poor farm labourer, who is about to die and about to be strangled to death in front of masses who were fighting to get a better view, who were partying. And those people were strangled to death. It was a short drop. It was only about two feet. So he dropped just to, um, so the people could just see the, uh, their knees, basically. And there was a box-like structure beneath the gibbet, which moved down. That uh, On the left, that actually is a picture of the gibbet in Fisherton. It's not just anywhere. And you can see that, that uh, they could, uh, I, I wanted to say murder, they could execute several people at the same time. And all the people who I'm referring to as well had their hands attached in front so that they were able to pray. And they had a rope placed around their neck and the hood pulled down over their face so that the crowd couldn't see the, the dreadful grimaces as they convulsed. And with that fate awaiting them, within days, it must have been a nightmarish shock to stand in the dock at Salisbury Guildhall and see the judge don his black cap, which was just a square of fabric, and his black gloves, and pronounce the death sentence. George Pierce, you will be taken hence to the prison in which you were last confined, and from there to a place of execution, where you will be hanged by the neck until you are dead. And may the Lord have mercy upon your soul. So you would be very terrified if you heard that, wouldn't you? <laughs> anyway, just the, the slide that I missed there is just to show when uh, they were executed above the gate of Fisherton Prison. So in the middle, you've got the front uh, elevation of the prison gate. Um, the handcuffs is, is set, is a plaque which is set at the bottom of the clock tower. Actually, it didn't belong to that place, the old prison. Actually, came from the new prison when it was demolished, and it probably sat above that gate in the centre. Uh, right on the, the gate, right up, over on the right, uh, is the real gate that the condemned pers uh, people walked through to uh, from Fishton Jail to be executed above the gate. And I have to thank uh, Frog Moody for finding that through a newspaper article. When they demolished the old uh, prison, they, somebody actually uh, very googlishly bought that gate as a souvenir and set it in his garden. So it's still there in Endless Street. Anyway, let's go on to one of my case studies. 
So, Sarah Kempster. So, it's a hot summer's day at the very end of July 1831 when Mrs. Sarah Kempster leaves behind her six-year-old daughter Ellen and sets off from South Marston in the district of Swindon to visit her husband Edward, who's stationed with the Wiltshire Militia at Marlborough. She's got some five hours walk to get there, but she doesn't have any other transport. So Edward was down as an agricultural labourer on their marriage bands back in 1824, but now he's joined the militia. And the militia's made up largely of conscripts drawn by ballot from amongst the able-bodied men of the parish between the ages of 18 and 50. And he's got three to five years to do. Well, he can keep his usual job most of the time, but sometimes he's got to go away to train. That's what he's doing now in Marlborough. And he'll get paid a regular soldier's wages then. In the meantime, Sarah and Ellen are wanting for money. Or maybe he's got some for her now. So the militia are to be the front line of defence if the French attack. But the county will also call them in times of civil unrest, as there's been just a few months ago with the so-called swing riots, which we're going to talk about later. So Edward might be called to march against angry mobs of impoverished farm workers just like himself. Well, it's usually the yeomanry they called. They've got the horses, but he's the reserve. And that's why he's got to go away to another area to train, so he doesn't know the local population. It's haymaking time. And as Sarah travels on the roads, passing through the fields, gangs of farm workers, dressed in their rough, undyed cotton smocks, are cutting the hay and pitchforking it up upon wooden carts under the clear blue sky. The little town of Marlborough is full. Sarah had intended to spend the night with Edward rather than walk home and back in the day, but although the pair have searched the town for a room, all the rooms are taken by the militiamen. <coughs> There's nowhere to stay. So Edward agrees to accompany her part of the way home, the next day being Sunday, where it's the Sabbath and you can't break it, so there won't be work for anybody then. So they set off on foot together. It's a bright, moonlit night. They've only got as far as Prashute, just a quarter of a mile from Marlborough, when they see a palisaded enclosure. Well, you can see down the bottom right, that's called a Barton around Marlborough. And it had a full hay wagon in it. So Sarah wants to rest before the walk back, she says. Maybe the couple just want some intimate time together. But they climb into the enclosure and they crawl together under the wagon. What happens next is like something out of that film, Deliverance. John Smart comes up first. He climbed up upon the wagon. Well, what's wrong with him? Throughout the whole episode, which must have lasted at least 25 minutes, Smart never says a word, nor budges from the wagon. Then comes John Moore, aged 26, 27, drunk. He was the instigator. 
He's accompanied by Daniel Middleton. He's only 17, also in his cups. You see, it was the worst of times to be an agricultural labourer. Labourers used to be housed and fed by the farmer. Now, you lived out, you only got paid for piecework, and you might have to travel to get any work. Dan, Dan Middleton came from Chippenham. Well, you got paid by the day or the week. This was the end of the week. And it was a frequent custom to dole out the pay in a local hostelry, with consequences much lamented by Mr Justice Parks presiding over the assizes. There were no rooms to be rented in Marlborough. The labourers had come to sleep it off under the cover of the wagon or in the hay on a balmy summer's night. Sarah Kempster stood up at the trial, held the following march at the Guildhall Salisbury, and told the shocking tale to the judge and jury herself. More cry, hello. Moore cried, Halloa, and my husband answered him. He then knelt down beside the wagon, and my husband said, There is no room, it is me and my wife. Moore then said, Oh, there's a woman there, that is just what we want. Moore then caught hold of my hand and said, She is no more your wife than she is mine, and that I will let you know. Middleton was present at the same time. He held my husband's hands while Moore kept beating him. No other persons had come up at this time, but when my husband had got his hands loose, the woman and the man Pierce came up, and I got away to the rail. George Pierce is just 21, another drunken farm worker, and Elizabeth Hans is older at 25 or 26, and she was described in court as being a prostitute of the lowest order. Pierce and Hans climb up on the wagon. It's Sarah's chance. She makes a break for it, but gets held back by the rail. I'll treat you with anything you like if you help us, Edward calls to smart Pearson hands, but they plainly won't help. Run and get help, Sarah shouts. It's only a quarter of a mile to the town. Edward takes off. Moore starts to run after him, but he's not as fit as the soldier. Maybe it's the drink, maybe it's his boots, but he can't catch him. It's amazing that they didn't leave Sarah then and get far away. Perhaps she was sure they would. Rape was a hanging offence. All of them had been well lit by the light of the moon were identifiable. <coughs> well, according to Google, it should, <laughs> yes, according to Google, it should take a fit man walking at a moderate pace just four minutes to cover a quarter of a mile. It might be from the Duke of York to the Balti House. Edward was running, of course, and to get to the various rooms of all these different comrades, for them to get dressed, to get back to Sarah, would take time. But even so, Moore and Middleton had no time to waste to get far away from that Barton. But they stayed there and continued their attack. I would speculate that the likely explanation is that Moore really was convinced that Sarah wasn't Edward's wife. Militia men didn't have their families with them but sol like regular soldiers did. But that, uh, they thought she was a lowly woman engaged in at least part-time prostitution. It was impossible in law at that time to rape a prostitute. So... 
They, uh, uh, they rape victims rarely went to court and testified. It damaged their own reputations. It was usually unproven. They reckoned without Sarah. More than laid hold of me by the throat and put some hay in my mouth to prevent me screaming. Elizabeth Hams, the woman, said, damn her, put some hay into her mouth. I hate a modest whore. Pierce, on the instigation of that woman, then came down from the wagon and then held me by the hair of the head over the rails. Middleton then said that he could not do as he wished. I prevented Middleton by struggling. Moore then came up, but he could not effect as he wished, so Pierce forced me from the rail and threw me down on the ground. First Moore raped her, then Middleton. Edward, on his way back with five soldiers, could hear her screaming from just outside the town until it went silent. Moore had stuffed a handkerchief into her mouth. It was the testimony of the five militiamen who arrived whilst Middleton was still raping her that proved the case beyond reasonable doubt. Sarah said that her injuries had been so great that she'd been dreadfully ill after the attack and had barely recovered later. So that's, the, that's just a picture of the criminal register and if it were bigger you would be able to see more Middleton uh, Pearson hands on it. So Judge uh, Mr Justice Park was greatly affected during his summing up. He'd been terribly moved and revolted by the case, as had the whole courtroom. Whilst the case against Smart was dismissed, there could be nothing but the death sentence for the other four. He put on the black cap to pronounce the dreaded words. It was then the 12th of March, and the execution was set for the 20th, a week and one day away. That's a lot um, longer than usual, and that's probably because they had to hang three of them together. Elizabeth Hans became dreadfully agitated as the sentence was passed and was carried from the dock in convulsive sobs. Her great distress evidently touched the judge because her sentence was commuted to transportation for life before he had left town. Middleton and Moore took to religious instruction in prison and recognised the enormity of their crime and the justice of their punishment. Not so George Pierce. He had, said the journal, been given hope by the mercy shown to Hans because he'd hardly done much more than she had. He refused to prepare himself for death until the last minute, incredulous, when the stay of execution didn't arrive. Like Derek Bentley, that's the Let Em Have It case, Pierce couldn't comprehend that although he hadn't committed rape, he had been an accessory, so for the law, he was as guilty as John Moore. Middleton and Moore walked past the prison yard, shaking the hands of the pr uh, prisoners through the iron railings and warning them away from alehouses, the frequentation of which they blamed for their terrible fate. Young Middleton was first on the scaffold, uh, erected in front of the gate, facing Devizes Road. Not a muscle moving as the rope was placed around his neck. Eighteen years old now. 
He spoke confidently of his good father, his good mother, and how, had he heeded their good counsel, he would not be stood here on the gallows today. He was a second child and eldest boy of seven siblings from Chippenham. It's likely his parents had been to take their leave of him and waited in Salisbury. Next up was Moore, also confident. Again, he blamed the alehouses for his downfall, but he didn't exhibit any guilt that he'd clearly been the ringleader who'd led the others to their grisly fate. Alone came George Pierce, his face strongly marked by sorrow and despair, to quote the journal. His aspect was fearful and depressing. The love of life, which appeared to have been subdued in the others, seemed in this his last hour again to visit the bosom of the wretched man and inflict a pang of which his countenance afforded a melancholy evidence. He was only 21. The drop fell and the three were launched into eternity. Dan Middleton's parents collected his body and took it home to be buried in the parish church of Chippenham. That's uh, at the top, you can see. His, uh, his family are on the first census of 1841 as all being farm labourers. <coughs> How George Pierce must have blamed Moore and Middleton for his ghastly situation. However, since nobody claimed neither his nor Moore's body... They were both buried by the parish at Fisherton, most likely together in a common pauper's grave at St Clement's Church. St Clement's Church at the bottom, so it's a parish register. Um, that's the secret garden. As for Elizabeth Hams, she was embarked upon the Francis Charlotte prison hulk moored at Woolwich, bound for St Van Damon's land, that's Tasmania. She never got to even leave port, dying of cholera before the ship departed. There was a cholera epidemic in London at the time, and mass graves were being dug at Woolwich the same period. So it's quite likely that Hans was buried there, but not for long, however because those graves were emptied of all their contents as quickly as they were being filled, with the corpses turning up on dissecting tables all over London, recognisable by the pitch with which they were covered. As for the Kempsters, Edward Kempster became a cord wainer, and uh, he died before Sarah, and his widow le um, lived on until 1861 with her spinster daughter, Ellen. And they were both agricultural farm labourers. Ellen never married. Perhaps she'd grown up with a bad opinion of men. Charles Giles. Now, Charles Giles wasn't a Victorian at all because he died in the reign of William IV. Yet Giles was surely the quintessential template of 
for the moustache twirling arch villain of every Victorian melodrama to come. He met his end on the gallows, erected above Fisherton Jail Gate. So he walked through that gate that's in Endless Street. Uh, facing the Devizes Road, March 1831. And he was only 21 when he committed the murder for which he was hanged. So, born and brought up in White Parish, Charles Giles was one of six children born to Richard and Rosanna Giles, long-term occupiers of land belonging to an ex-sheriff uh, of Wiltshire, which included the chalk pits known then as Giles Chalk Pits. So Richard is described as a yeoman on the administration bond for probate, and he died two years before Charles was hanged, with his eldest son, also Richard, taking over the farm. So yeoman, in this case, meant a prosperous small farmer, just one step down from the gentry, and uh, they were on the electoral uh, roll. The Giles farmhouse was that which is known today as Chalk Pit Farm. You can still see it, there it is, on the Romsey Road, and it's a Grade Two listed building. Uh, Ashmore Pond... Uh, Ashmore Pond, most of the fields listed to Giles are much as they were then, although there's a firework factory which stands on the Chalk Pits. So that is basically a list of um, the Giles land. So, so land was owned by a great big landowner who was George Yeldon Fort and uh, he was up at the top there. You can see he had been um, uh, a sheriff of Wiltshire in 1800. It's quite interesting because above him, two, uh, two years before him, it was John Bennett of Pitt House who we're going to meet later. So all the land is, is listed there, and it ha the numbers on the left are keys to the tithe map. And there's a picture of the tithe map with the corresponding land, and I visited it, and it's still nearly all there. So, um, so Ashman Pond's still there, the fields are still laid out. You couldn't walk into, I couldn't walk into the chalk pit because, as I say, there was a firework, a firework factory there, but uh, it's, it's laid out very much as it was then, which is quite, quite incredible. So. so, chalk. Chalk was usually ground, cooked in kilns or powdered. It was used in agriculture. Uh, spread over the land to counteract the acidity in the soil and it could also be burnt to produce quicklime which they used in mortar and it was a whitener and extender for other colours in paint you can still buy chalk paint it was also used in pharmacy because it counteracts the acidity in the stomach so they were doing very well with chalk there um, the Giles family were also master shoemakers uh, which means that uh, cobblers repair shoes and the cordwainers or shoemakers made shoes from scratch. Master shoemakers, I found on sen the census, following census, that the Giles family actually had apprentices. They would certainly have known Shoemakers Hall behind the Pheasant Inn now. And uh, they were making a good 
livelihood because it, um, whilst the countryside was emptying and people were trying, trying to get better jobs in towns, uh, that wasn't the case of White Parish in the early 19th century because they had a brickworks and actually their population was actually getting quite a lot bigger. And the Giles family seemed to have been quite flush with cash, as we'll see later. So we don't know how Charles met the maiden uh, young Miss Harriet Stone, who was also born and brought up in White Parish. She said at the trial that she had known Charles for about seven or eight years. She was about a year older than him and was seduced by him at the beginning of 1830 on the, beginning, uh, on the promise of marriage, wrote the Salisbury Journal. So Charles probably appeared an extremely good catch for somebody like Harriet, who was a much lower class than him. In fact, it's probable that Harriet couldn't believe her luck. Of course... Charles isn't so keen on marriage when Harriet says she's expecting. He doesn't want to marry her at all. He doesn't want to tell his mum that he's uh, got this lower-class girl pregnant, and he just doesn't know what to do. He doesn't want anybody else in White Parish to know. What he really wants is for her to go into service and go away, but she can't do that with a baby. Besides... The parish will pursue him to pay for that baby to keep the costs of parish relief down. That was the law until 1834 that a man had to pay for his um, illegitimate infant even if she married someone else, even if the mother married someone else. So Charles makes a plan. He separates Harriet away from her family and friends, all those close to her to whom she might confide that she's with child, and he whisks her away to a far distant, wonderful place, Warminster, <laughs> to live with him. He soon, he soon leaves for, War, uh, for White Parish. He says that his brother is dying. Actually, the journal makes it out that it was an excuse, but I found his brother actually was dying and did die. So he leaves uh, Harriet in lodgings with a poor midwife and husband. And since these two will later be his defence witnesses, I don't think they're the nicest people at all. But not ones to raise a stir if the newborn happens to die at birth. So Charles is giving Harriet money, he's paying the lodgings, and she is accepted as gentleman's mistress. Before Charles leaves, he takes hold of both of Harriet's hands and says, Stifle the child as soon as it's born. Now, a couple of things to mention here. Firstly, with no contraception, abortion or council housing, new babies are extremely common murder victims. And we'll never know at this distance in time exactly how many babies are being murdered daily because the high infant mortality rate disguises willful murder and the women's long dresses can conceal their pregnancies. Concealing a birth is against the law, but if you're not caught, then nobody will know. 
So tiny bodies can be disposed of in the vast countryside or locked in boxes, put down wells, thrown in rivers. No one will be any the wiser. And if caught, it'll have to be proved that the baby was born alive or it didn't die as a result of an accident during the birth. It breathed once was the usual expression. Uh, incidentally, the last mother in the country to be hanged for infanticide was Rebecca Smith in Devizes in 1849. But then she had confessed to murdering eight of her 11 children by smearing arsenic on her nipples. So Charles Giles evidently doesn't see a problem with murdering his own infant and he'll be far away when it happens. Harriet doesn't believe he's serious. Well, she's preparing linen to dress the child, so she tells the court, contradicting the nurse. Cynically speaking, the child is her hold over young Mr Giles, and she still hopes to be married. So, riding back from White Parish a few weeks later, expecting to be given some sad news, what does Charles find? the happy mother sitting up nursing her healthy, beautiful baby, proud as anything. And the nurse hands the new father his tiny, weeks-old son to hold. Charles is exasperated. He berates Harriet when the nurse is gone. What is to be done now the child is living? You might as well let me poison it. <coughs> You're not going to poison my child, she cries. Harriet's frightened and bursts into tears. So Charles goes away. He stays away a fortnight. And when he comes back, it's dark, about ten. Harriet's in bed. The baby's in a cradle beside her. And Charles climbs through the window. So the nurse doesn't see him. I'm taking you home, he tells Harriet. And she's more relieved than anything that he's back and that now they will get married in White Parish and the nurse has been really on at her. She needs money for the keep, which is three shillings and sixpence. Here's a sovereign, says Charles. Go out and get some change. Go on, go out. So Harriet hurries out. And while she's out, she thinks she hears the baby cry she can't get any change, and when she comes back, he's sitting down cradling the baby. It's wearing a short gown and a cap. It's wrapped in a shawl and a flannel. And she picks the baby up and kisses its lips. They're burning hot. Well, they would be. He's fed it some sulfuric acid. Don't forget it's dark. There's just candlelight. Oh, my God, Charles! You've poisoned my child, she accuses him, but he denies it, and climbs out of the window. He wants them all to leave by the window, because he doesn't want to see the nurse. He tells Harriet that they're going to leave without paying, but then the landlord catches them, he tells her to walk on, and it's then, she says, she puts her finger in the baby's mouth and finds its tongue all scorched. It's got burn on its cheek, its clothes are burnt, she says she feels its legs spasm and it, and it dies in her arms. Well, that's what she tells the court, but surely that baby would have died of shock instantly. Did she know he'd do it? Did she go out on purpose? 
did she not want to say that the baby had died in the house because she didn't want the nurse to come? Harriet would tell the jury she didn't believe that Charles would do it. He seemed fond of the child, she said. You poisoned him, didn't you, she asked him after he's caught up. But Charles denies it, taking the tiny corpse, wrapping it in a pillowcase and stuffing it into his greatcoat pocket. It must have been the poppy syrup the nurse gave it. I'll bury it with my brother. They take a cart from Codford to Fisherton and no doubt pass right in front of that prison gate and walk across the fields to Homington where Harriet has a friend. Then he gives her three sovereigns, which is about two weeks' wages then for a skilled artisan. Don't go to White Parish, he says. Tell no one about the child. Go to your sister in Southampton and get a place in service. So, Harriet just got dumped. Her baby was murdered. Her man was gone and she had a prospect of a life as a servant instead of the comfortable marriage she'd been promised. Her friend would say that uh, Harriet threatened to throw herself into the water, which was presented as potential proof of insanity. To say that she was distraught and angry was an understatement. And so Harriet Stone did tell her sister, who marched her to the mayor of Southampton, who sent her on to the justice of White Parish and bent to the constable. By coincidence, someone, young Charles Maggs, had seen Charles Giles burying the body one morning and told the constable who dug up the corpse and took it to the surgeon. The site of the shallow grave was by the hedge in a field close to the Giles farmhouse bordering the chalk pit. So that is the field close to the Giles farmhouse and it borders the chalk pit over there on the right. So maybe that's the very same hedge. if, Charles, uh, if Giles had smothered the child, then perhaps murder might be unproven, but sulfuric acid in what remained of his insides left no room for doubt as to the infant's grisly end. So Charles Giles was arrested. He always seemed particularly fond of children, said one of the defence's character witnesses laying it on with a trowel. The most affecting scene in court was when the young mother was given the baby's clothes to identify. The jury returned a verdict of guilty, but unusually with a recommendation to mercy. So it's become a bit of a cliché to quote uh, L.P. Hartley, the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there, but it's very true. To our eyes, Charles Giles' crime might be the most horrific of all the crimes I'm talking about tonight. I mean, just imagine our modern newspaper headlines. But it wasn't to the jury. It's the only case uh, tonight where they recommended mercy. Perhaps because infanticide was something which they understood and Charles uh, Giles was a young man from the same class as themselves. He wasn't an uneducated, uncouth labourer like that George Pierce. The judge, Mr Justice Parks, again said, The jury have pronounced a verdict of guilty against you. 
a verdict which to my conscience is perfectly satisfactory. It is true that you have not been seen to commit the act, but the eye of God saw it, and he wonderfully brings things to light for the punishment of evildoers in this life. I am perfectly satisfied with the verdict. I'm innocent! Your case, young man, is a case of the most unnatural and inhuman kind, and it is much aggravated by the attempts made, first, to insinuate something against the young woman herself, and by a second attempt to make her out insane. But it is clear to me that you meditated the offence that you have committed. In order to maintain your good character among your neighbours, I fear that it is too apparent that you remove this young woman to a distance to lie in. And when the fruit of her body became a living child, you were afraid your character would be blasted, and you were induced to commit the act of which you have been convicted. Under these circumstances, I dare not, as I tender my duty to my God and country, attend to the kind recommendation of the jury. But I do earnestly entreat you, as I pray for your soul's happiness, that you will not continue during the short time you have to live to lay the flattering unction on your soul that you are innocent. Lay open your wicked heart and pray for repentance. And may all within these walls who hear my voice and all without these walls be deterred by your awful example by entering upon and pursuing those paths which must ultimately lead to death. Charles breaks down and sobs when he hears those dreadful words pronounced and shouts, I'm innocent! He spends an awful first night in the condemned cell, still accusing Harriet of complicity. If he'd read the latest copy of the Salisbury Journal, he might have been even more furious and vengeful. The same judge had lately come from sitting at the Assizes in Winchester, the town before Salisbury on the Western Circuit. There, the court had tried the case of a young couple. Susan Burchett was accused of having murdered her male bastard child at the Isle of Wight and Joseph Proctor for instigating her to the commission of the act. It was decided that, since it could not be proved that the child had been born alive, there was no evidence against the prisoners who were accordingly acquitted. The infant breathed once. Joseph walked free from the court and Susan got two months, without hard labour, for concealment of a birth. So that's more or less what Charles uh, Giles would have risked. And they hadn't even concealed the birth. But Harriet had just not done what she had been told to do. So Lord Justice Parks was no dupe when he implicitly accused Charles, um, Charles Giles of manipulation, narcissism and outright lies. And buying the witnesses... On arrival at prison, Giles continued to implicate Harriet, but after a no doubt sleepless night, he made a voluntary and full confession to the prison chaplain and confessed that the murder was his own idea, that he alone had bought the poison and that he alone had administered it in the absence of the child's mother. 
After this confession, he appeared to be very much calmer and to accept the justness of his sentence, and he spent the rest of his time with the chaplain, the Reverend Mr. Hodgson, preparing himself for death. Well, we'll be meeting the Reverend Mr. Hodgson uh, later on in this talk, in the second half, and I'll even show you that I've got a picture of him, and that he's one of my history heroes. <laughs> so I should point out that the prison chaplain was one of the most important people in the prison. He was the closest friend to the condemned man in his last days, and if he convinced the prisoner that his soul would live on in heaven if he truly repented and accepted his fate, then that man would be um, a great deal easier in himself. So even if you're not religious, you have to say that that was the best thing for, for the prisoner, the prisoners that uh, really believed um, Reverend Mr. Hodgson were much, much, it was much easier for them to go to the scaffold. So, and that made things easier for the guards uh, as well and for the executioner because hanging someone like George Pierce was distressing for everybody that had to deal with the situation. In fact, the guards that usually um, accompanied an, um, a condemned man to the scaffold were brought from other prisons because it was it, um, the guards who had been there and got close to the prisoner, it was, it was found it was much too difficult to, for them. So, Charles spent the morning of his execution in fervent prayer and received the last sacrament, and then he became anxious to get the dreadful moment over and done with. The other prisoners, with the exception of Henry Wilkins, who I'm going to talk about in, uh, a bit later, who was due to die the following week, were all standing in front of the governor's house to bid him farewell. But that's obviously not the governor's house that was... Uh, uh, on the corner of York Road and Sydney Street. So I think when the prison was first built, the governor must have had another house inside, but they ran out of space. That's why the prison uh, finished by stopping. It became overcrowded, so obviously they built another house outside. So, um, so uh, Charles Giles asked the executioner, and the guards to get their job over as quickly as possible, not to let him suffer. He had concluding um, prayers and had an affectionate leave with the chaplain. And he walked onto the platform with no speeches. He didn't wait for the chaplain to read the burial service. Um, the executioner put the, the rope, the hood over his head as quickly as possible, and the bolt on the trap was drawn. And luckily, the executioner had positioned the knot in exactly the right place, which that something made a lot of difference, although they didn't actually know that at the time. And with one brief struggle, Charles Giles was gone. An ugly current spread through the crowd. People started hurling insults at the executioner. They'd come to watch a show full of emotion and horror, culminating in the murderer dancing the Tyburn jig for as long as possible, and they felt cheated. But, said the Salisbury Journal, the executioner should have been lauded for the most inconceivable rapidity with which he dispatched Giles 
not subjected to much censure. So after hanging the usual time, his body was given to the surgeons for dissection and his mother evidently had his remains taken back to White Parish since his name appears in the burials for that parish. So it's only from the 1860s that executed murderers had to be buried within the precincts of the prison, not before. So it's quite likely that um, Mrs Giles had Charles buried with her other son who died only months before. And what of the Giles family? Because after all, Charles had murdered Rosanna's own grandson in the most callous method, but the family had all presumably been party to the paying of witnesses to try and find Harriet Stone guilty instead of him. That might have seen her transported for life if she wasn't hanged. Um, well, in 1841, Charles's brother George I found in the criminal records as he broke into a property. He didn't break into a house, but the land um, close to a property in White Parish, and he got six months prison. So I, mean, I don't know the story behind that, but he, he obviously wasn't the most honest of people either. Harriet Stone uh, appears to have married a bricklayer named Thomas Giles in White Parish two years later, and she had four children. Um, but on the last census, she, both, um, she and her husband are marked as being on parish relief. So White Parish is a small place, and I wonder if Harriet and her little family ever passed the Giles family, and what they all thought. So on the slide... Right to the right is uh, Charles Giles's nephew. So that's a real picture of his nephew, not a made-up one. And uh, I just wonder if there's any family resemblance if, uh, for the Giles family. And on the left is uh, a little map of the actual gatehouse above which Charles Giles was hanged. So you've seen the front elevation of it. And now you can see the side door, and you can see you go up the steps there. So I think the side door is where the gate from en uh, that's in Endless Street now stood, that door there. So he walked up those stairs and was hanged, and he lies somewhere in that graveyard. Shall we, shall we take a little break now? Thank you very much, Ruth. So, ladies and gentlemen, good round of Thank you. Bringing to life some of the characters that uh, unfortunately passed away literally yards from where we're standing. So, we'll have a short break for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then we'll hear about more lives. Thank you. So, Robert Brown was born in Oaksey, Wiltshire, in uh, 1783, so right on the Gloucestershire border. And I haven't found out a lot about his early life, except that his parents were probably Charles and Molly Brown, and that he had at least one older brother, Charles, and maybe four sisters. 
So there are many uh, brown families in Oaksey, all producing offspring, and I imagine they're all linked, even if it's a long way back. So it was before the census, so it makes it difficult to be 100% certain about Robert and Charles's uh, parentage. There were around 500 inhabitants in Oaksey, and only around 17 of the men were officially tradesmen. The rest were agricultural labourers, and so was Robert Brown. His brother, however, went into the service of a lady and stayed 33 years, which will turn out to be important to Robert when he's up before the beak. So sometime around 1815, Robert met a woman named Hannah Brown. She's most likely the one born in Watton under Edge, Gloucester, in 1785, and they have a son, Edward, who was born there. I can't find a marriage certificate, and it might be that since she already carried the same surname, they dispensed with, uh, with the ceremony. Descendants of the family put down their son, Charles, as well, but no paperwork. And I found a baby Robert, born to a pauper, Hannah Brown, in Oaksey in 1816. And this might be the same little baby who was buried in Holvington in 1817, since Holvington is very close to Littleton Drew. It was in 1817 that Robert Brown arrived in Littleton Drew, which is a beautiful village eight miles outside Chippenham. Well, now it doesn't seem to have a centre, but once it did have a pub, the plough, two beer shops, which no doubt sold groceries too, and, um, but the M4 now bisects the parish, but the area still seems very rural. The Lord of the Manor was and is the Duke of Beaufort. Things start looking up for Robert in Littleton, and soon he has a fine house. Well, you see, he got evicted from the first one he lived in, perhaps towards Hollowington, but there was a vacant one not so far away. Well, abandoned, really, and badly in need of repair, and so Robert went into it for shelter, and he just sort of stayed. The owner of this house was a Mr Richard Lee, and he didn't live in Littleton Drew, Laycock is probable, and it would seem that at first Mr Lee didn't care. I say that because it would be 11 years before he took any firm action, despite Robert paying no rent. But there was always a tradition in England back then that the existence of squatters was not necessarily a bad thing. Although the term for squatting was adverse possession, which sees it as a wrong, unused land would go to rack and ruin, unused buildings would start falling in, and it was assumed that squatters would keep everything up together and in good order and invest in the place, even if they paid no rent. Also, the possibility of adverse possession forces landowners to monitor and maintain their land. So that's a different way of looking at it. But either way, good for the community by stopping the wasting of resources. So presumably Mr Lee's building was in very bad repair when Robert Brown moved into it. Or else Mr Lee would surely have rented it out. And the arrangement seems to have suited him because he just didn't do anything for a very long time. And during those years, 
But Robert had the house. He had four more children born. William, Martha, Daniel and Ellen. So a later article on Brown's execution put the children um, as far uh, as high as nine, although as it got the Christian name wrong of the man Robert was hanged with for a separate crime, it wasn't totally reliable and I can only really trace five of them. So Robert Brown appears to have been very industrious. He talked at the trial of his own investment of the time and money into his house. And of course, let's not forget that Hannah, too, must have invested hours and hours over the years in her home. John Atkins of Holvington Labourer said, About two or three years ago, I went to Brown's house for some plants. I said, you have a very good house and garden. When he told me there was a dispute between him and others respecting the house he lived in and the garden, and he then took down two old bayonets one having a handle and the other a part to fix it to a gun and said if anyone opposed him he would put them into him and if one would not do execution the other would. They were old Spanish bayonets, shorter than English ones, no doubt collected during the Napoleonic Wars. The fact that Brown was said to be in dispute over the house is a very important detail because there is, of course, the English common law on adverse possession, which dates back to the 13th century and is set by and down by statute in the 17th century. It means that someone occupying the property for a continuous amount of time without paying nor being asked to pay rent could eventually claim the property as their own. So this was to force owners, use it or lose it, and prevent waste. So in 1623, a limitation act was made, fixing the period when an owner could eject a squatter to 20 years. But until um, these laws were simplified in 1833, it all seems incredibly complicated with various clauses. From 1878, the period went down to 12 years, and is currently 10, I think. So... Robert Brown dug his heels in. He considered himself the real owner of the house and garden because of his physical possession of it for 11 years and he refused to either pay rent nor leave the property. And a good part of the trial would, according to a variety of newspaper accounts, consist of the prosecution stating that Mr Lee had asked Brown for rent and that Brown had gone to the agent's um, office at Bradford and Avon with the names of two people whom he said might fix a fair rent for him to pay and this was brought out to prove that Brown acknowledged Lee as the owner. It was also stated that Brown said that if anyone was the true owner of the house, it was himself because he paid a ground rent of a shilling a year to the Duke of Beaufort, who was Lord of the Manor of Littleton. A previous agent of Mr Lee had got an ejectment uh, order against him, but nothing had come of that. So Robert Brown never stopped saying he was a rightful owner of the house, and all the reports are united in giving the impression that he had the uttermost conviction of this, although Mr Lee went through the correct legal channels, and so he must have had proof that it was him uh, who indeed held the deeds. Mr Lee's attorney said that Mr Lee didn't want to turn Brown out the house, he simply wanted him to pay some rent. 
truth to tell, Robert Brown was probably unable to pay rent. He was an agricultural labourer at one of the worst moments in history for agricultural labourers. Rich tenant farmers had been regularly lowering wages due to a surplus of men freed up by the end of the Napoleonic Wars and a population boom. Workers were now being replaced by machinery. Winter work had traditionally been threshing, but now they had threshing machines. Since the price of grain had also fallen, employers would pay workers as little as they could get away with and expect the parish relief to top up up the wages to subsistence level. They'd only now pay men for piecework, which uh, they actually did, whereas before they kept their farm workers all year round and fed them. Robert Brown had many children. The house gave them all a roof over their heads. The garden, that's absolutely crucial, the garden. It allowed them to grow their own food. So that's crucial after the Enclosures Act to see the loss of common land where anyone might graze an animal or cultivate vegetables. I have to, I have to say here, well, later on I'm going to talk a bit about the swing riots and uh, when I was looking through the papers that's what I saw again and again was put forward uh, that the solution for farm workers was to have a farm cottage and a garden so that they could feed themselves in hard times, you know. So Atkins had um, said, remember, he'd come round to the house with some plants. So maybe, you know, maybe Robert Brown was even selling a few plants. But, uh, so Robert Brown had everything to lose by leaving his home. He had everything to lose by paying even a small amount of rent. Since the minute he did that, he automatically acknowledged that Mr. Lee was the owner of that house. So Robert needed to hold out. A previous eviction order, which had been granted, hadn't been acted on, so he, that gave him hope and he had everything to hope that he could just hang on. But it all came to a head on Friday, the 11th of April, 1828. A cold, grey, rainy day. Mr. Lee had served another eviction order, and so he proceeds to Littleton Drew to legally seize possession of his property. He's accompanied by his nephew. Mr. Harding, the sheriff's officer from Bradford-on-Avon, and William Sherwood, his assistant from Littleton Drew, are there. John Daniels, the constable, was there. Mr. Bush, Lee's attorney, arrives in the middle of the afternoon. So here you can see, more or less, this is the number of people that turned up uh, at the Browns' place in the late afternoon. So uh, the two crosses at, at, at the bottom of the two people are going to get stabbed. And so I think, you know, this is an imagined slide, but you can see very well that the people that he actually stabbed are not the tops. Robert is gardening, so he couldn't have had any employment at the time. Hannah and the children are inside the house. Harding reads his warrant to Robert and orders them to let them into the house, but unsurprisingly, Brown refuses. 
And then the men start hammering on the door, ordering the Brown family to quit the house. The Browns stay locked in. Mr Lee isn't going home without gaining possession, and the Browns are going to brazen it out and stay put. They have no other option to do but to do that. They're painted into a corner. The children must have picked up on that terrible tension and started becoming clingy or attention-seeking. I mean, one of the children, Ellen, is under a year old. Daniel is two. Martha is three. William is five. There are probably older, some older children there. Edward would have been 13, for example. After a while, the men, in a group consultation, call for young Thompson. So that's him right on the end, as I've imagined him, now arrived to bring a crowbar and they force off the door. The children are surely crying with fear now and Hannah shouting. William Richard Walter, uh, uh, Labourer, is watching. So Thompson, a young boy named Clark, proceeded to remove the goods into the street. So that means they throw all the Browns family furniture and personal possessions out into the road, really. A muddy rural street. It's now started to rain heavily, and that takes a couple of hours. Well, they must have thrown the children's beds out into the wet. The night's drawing in. There's no street lights. Brown's gone away. Where did he go? Well, perhaps he's gone to get help to repel the invaders, or perhaps to find a place for them all to go to. But it's no use, he can't find anything. And they get Hannah by the arms and try to drag her out. But the moment they get her to the door, she runs back inside. She resisted worse than him, said one paper. Robert's got a child in his arms trying to block the route. Another newspaper wrote, reporting from the trial, while Sherwood was forcing the prisoner's wife out of the house, she had in her arms a child but a few months old. She was at that moment in the family way. They had just forced her out when the prisoner struck the deceased. All the children had been put out before them. It was a very wet night. Another witness said he was present on the occasion. He saw the prisoner take out of his pocket a bayonet, with which he first wounded the man Thompson and then the deceased. Brown had one of the children in his arms whilst his wife and other children were turned out. It was a wet night and one of the children was lying upon the floor. It is not true that it was trodden underfoot. The prisoner entered into no statement in his defence but declared that when he committed the deed he was excited by passion to the highest possible degree at seeing his wife and children so ill-used. They were turned out to bear all the inclemencies of the weather from a house which he believed himself entitled to occupy and on which he had bestowed his money and labour. Well, if the law said that Mr Lee owned the house, then he was, of course, entitled to recover his own property. Yet, if Charles Giles was the forerunner of the Victorian villainous cad, then Richard Lee, in the reign of George IV, was the forerunner of the Victorian heartless landlord stereotype. After all, the house wasn't his home. He hadn't needed the money from rent in 11 years and faced with all those little infants, that black, rainy April night and the industry with which Robert Brown had transformed the property, he could have walked away and averted a tragedy. 
because even without that stabbing, it would still have been a tragedy for the Brown family. But it wasn't Mr. Lee who was stabbed, nor his nephew, who might have been the heir to the house. It was Thomas Sherwood, affectionately known as Shears to his friends, stabbed in the lung. And Thompson the farrier, who survived his wound in the small of the back. Both were known to Robert Brown, and they were previously good neighbours. It would not have happened if Shears had not been there, said Brown later but he wished to take the roof from over our head. It might be that Robert felt the participation in the, um, in the eviction of villagers with whom he'd been on good terms was crueler than that of total strangers. Or maybe he was deferential to those he saw as higher class to him. Shears was 49 at his death, born in nearby Sherston Magna, and just doing a job which he was employed to do. Living in Alderton next to Littleton, he left a wife and three children. His youngest daughter was only nine at his death, and he is buried in Churston Magna. Daniels, the constable, arrested Brown and started walking with him towards Chippenham. Uh, no one thought to take the murder weapon off him. It was dark, raining hard, no doubt muddy, and the roads unlit, so when they got to the main road, Daniels decided to stop at the Salutation Inn, which is still there, where they sat up all night. Robert confessed there to having dropped the bayonet discreetly out of his overcoat pocket along the way, so he obviously hadn't had handcuffs on or anything either. So I think that simply Daniels didn't see him as anybody who he'd ever, who was dangerous sort of person. Brown had a very good lawyer at his trial at the summer assizes at Salisbury Guildhall the following July. His brother, who'd been in service 33 years, remember, had during that time amassed savings of £300, which he spent on his brother's defence the defence hinging on Robert's belief that he owned the house and that he acted in a blind moment of passion. The jury, however, had no choice but to find him guilty of murder. There were enough witnesses and attempted murder, which was also a hangable offence. It didn't matter who owned the house, ruled the judge, Mr Justice Parks again. Killing someone in a passion was no defence and officers of the law carrying out their duty had to be protected. Robert Brown was left for execution the following Friday and to be anatomised, that's dissected. An additional punishment which uh, the judge might hand out, which generally struck her fear and horror into people at that time. None of the papers go into the usual details of the execution except to say that he was penitent for the crime and accepted his punishment. One does remark, however, that before the execution he was inconsolable with grief at parting from his wife and children. Robert Brown's burial doesn't appear in any of the parish records which I found. Did he come back from an atomization at the infirmary to be buried within the jail ground? Well, Mr Harding, dubbed the oldest man in Salisbury and speaking to the Salisbury Times, I think in the nine, around 1920, 
recalled bones being found at the site of the old jail, the central building then belonging to the military, and they were presumed to be those of executed prisoners. Although, obviously, there are prisoners who died also in the prison that might have been buried there too. So I've tried every organisation I could think of, uh, but I have found no uh, reports at all of human remains being found during the construction of the roundabout. So perhaps Robert Brown is still, still under there somewhere. Or he might have been removed to Devizes Road. <laughs> so as for his wife and children... They evidently became a burden to the parish of Littleton Drew, who applied to have them sent back to Watton Under Edge, since the old settlement laws concerning paupers tried to force their charge upon the parish where they were born, and Hannah and Edward at least had been born in Watton. But this was contested, probably because the rest of the children had been born elsewhere. Littleton then tried to send them to Oaksey, perhaps because the children's father came from there, and in the end, Hannah married again, so you can see at the bottom right uh, the band. Uh, two years after Robert's death, she married another farm labourer called Robert Kington, and she had two more children. <laughs> And when the census arrived in 1841, they were still in Littleton Drew, but she and her husband both sadly died in the workhouse in their old age, probably due to ill health. <coughs> the children are difficult to follow in the census because their names are common, brown, and it becomes clear that none of them really even knew their own ages. There are some tantalising glimpses. There's Martha living with her uncle Charles and aunt, running a grocery shop in Eastern Grey near Malmesbury, marrying Mr Clark. There's Edward, his younger brother Daniel, both farm labourers, living together in Oaksey, and then Edward alone, still in Oaksey, a middle-aged bachelor. But... The most heartwarming story is definitely of the little boy William, who was thrown into that cold and wet aged around five and saddled with stigma in Littleton Drew of his father having died on the gallows for having murdered the popular Thomas Shears Sherwood uh, with a pauper's childhood, partly la uh, lived on parish relief. So William started work on farms like all of them uh, but he married and had children, and in 1853 he emigrated with his family to Wisconsin. And by the 1860 census, according to Robert Brown's great-great-great-granddaughter, Diane Parker Brown, who I've been in touch with, um, William owned his own farm, free and clear, was doing as well or better as any of his neighbours, with in fact only one neighbour having a farm bigger than him. He lived on the farm to a ripe old age, into his 90s, when it was inherited by his youngest son, and his son, so that's Robert Brown's grandson, only died in 1957, which I find incredible. So Diane's father, Bruce Brown, had known about Robert Brown's execution, had himself done a lot of research, and it is partly for Diane and her father that I actually took flowers down to the roundabout in memory of Robert Brown. That's the last place where he was alive. 
the site of Fisherton Jail, and there is no excuse for murder. But you'd have to have a heart of stone not to have some sympathy for Robert Brown. <laughs> Gentlemen, do you want this one, Matt? Gentlemen, that works better. <laughs> Gentlemen, I know the uniform kindness of the rich. The rich exert themselves continuously on behalf of the poorer brethren, dedicating sums to charity and erecting institutions, hospitals and schools for their comfort and benefit. Members of the Grand Jury, I trust that some of you were present at the late special commissions which will be of some considerable utility. But since I perceive that there are some cases in the calendar connected with the late outrages, it is my imperative duty to lay down the law. Of the 23 members of the Grand Jury at the Lent Assizes of 1831, the very same court which saw Charles Giles hanged, only 14 of the jurors had initially turned up, and the rest needed to be sent for. Well, the reason is clear from the judges addressed to them. They didn't want to judge swing rioters. The swing rioters were so named because threatening letters to rich farmers with threshing machines were signed by the fictitious and vaguely threatening name of Captain Swing in an echo of letters sent by the mechanical loom-smashing Luddites which had been signed by fictitious General Ludd 20 years before. So, there's been, coincidentally, something in common be between all the executions of which I've talked about tonight. And that something is agriculture. Dan Middleton, John Moore, George Pierce, Robert Brown, actually even Sarah Kempster, Edward Kempster. They were all um, poor farm labourers. The family of Charles Giles were yeoman farmers, and Henry Wilkins, who was also executed above Fisherton Gate, was another poor agricultural labourer. Because Wiltshire was a county with an economy primarily based in agriculture, and although conditions for farm labourers and small farm owners had steadily worsened over the previous 50 years, those conditions reached their nadir during the very hard winter of 1829 to 30, which was the worst which people could remember and had, was followed by a very wet summer. So it was a bad time for the poor and it was a bad time for agriculture. How poor was Henry Wilkins? Well, Henry Wilkins was born in 1806 in Chute in Wiltshire, but on the Hampshire border near Andover, and he was aged 25 at his execution. He was the son of Daniel and Elizabeth, and the last but one of seven children, all boys. So, seven brothers for seven brides. In the later census, all his family are still agricultural labourers, bar John, who's a journeyman called Wainer, and James, who becomes a gardener groom. But Henry was later described as big, thick-set, muscular, and a natty dresser, was described as wearing a blue frock coat and a fur or furry hat. Thick-set and muscular. Doesn't bring to mind malnutrition, 
A coloured coat doesn't bring to mind total poverty, and the fur hat has trapper, uh, trapper overtones, which makes me wonder, pure speculation, if Henry wasn't also a poacher. He was described by the contemporary newspapers as having lived a wicked and dissolute life. Well, he had all the temptations of the women of Andover on his doorstep. <laughs> the wars with France and scarcity of labour had meant that local farmers had previously had to be competitive with wages. But with the end of the wars and the population boom, farmers responded by paying as little as they could get away with. And this couldn't happen so much in the Midlands or up north because their farm wages had to compete with industry and the opportunities afforded by big cities. But Wiltshire just didn't have any of those alternatives. A study of family economics done around 1831 found that a labourer with a wife and four children had uh, uh, on average an annual expenditure of £58.15 shillings for food, rent, clothes, fuel, candles and soap. So that's what people needed then. So the study of a typical Wiltshire, such family, found that had the labourer been in constant work at the usual pay, which was impossible because it's piecework, and if his wife and children earned something too, then their family income would optimistically be £37.16. Shillings. So there's obviously a big difference. A contemporary report shows that farm workers suffered from malnutrition and were around one inch shorter than their fathers had been. So you would have been much better off actually in the, uh, in the Georgian age than you were in 1831. Farm labourers had become paupers and Wiltshire was a county full of resentful paupers. So Wiltshire was one of a handful of notorious counties which followed the Speenham land model, uh, which came from Berkshire. I think I've already mentioned this. That is, instead of uh, setting a reasonable minimum wage, Speen had elected to make up the shortfall of low wages with parish relief, which had a disastrous effect. It encouraged the rich to pay ever lower wages. It forced up local taxes to pay the poor rate, and that bankrupted the poorer farmers who had to pay that. And they then were on the farm labouring market themselves. So, that, so uh, it was a sector which was already oversupplied. It led to constant cuts in the amount of relief given because there were so many people claiming that relief. So there was 22% less being given than there was at the end of the 18th century. And what's more, it caused humiliation to families forced to take parish relief, even though they were working and working extremely hard. So the problem of the rural poor had been raised in the House of Lords in Westminster during the previous year, and they had pre predictions of riots. But the lords were in general the large landowners themselves who were benefiting from the system and were loath to change it. So these riots started in Kent, they spread through Sussex and they broke out spontaneously in Berkshire, Hampshire, Wiltshire, where they were the worst, and lastly to Dorset. 
actually they touch most of the country but not in any significant way it's really Wessex the rioting usually consisted of gangs going to farms and demanding a rise in wages and breaking the thrashing machines uh, farms often left the machines out in fields to be broken or broke them themselves, which the rioters saw as a tacit uh, agreement that they were um, saw they were winning. Um, they they often asked a fee for breaking the machines, which was held by a treasurer. Uh, sometimes they asked for beer. They sent sometimes they sent threatening letters, which were signed Captain Swing and some ricks were burnt, or in the worst cases, barns. Farmers usually agreed to everything and were amicable, which they said later was due to fear, but it meant that the men involved naively didn't hide their faces. They weren't wearing masks or anything. They were quite open about all this because they thought it was the very traditional English way of making their points known, direct action. But... From reading the contemporary papers, I can see there was also another type of rioter. Around Romsey, gangs went along the roads to the town, stopping at every, every house, demanding money and drink. And there's no pretense it was about agriculture. And they burnt the local turnpike, for example. And it's quite interesting because I have seen another theory about that, that actually the... Uh, the peak of these riots was the 23rd of November and that was the saint's day for the blacksmiths where they would have gone from house to house actually asking for food and money in the way like you did carol singing, you know. I don't know if that's true or not or they're just trying to make an excuse for this, but there you go. So a study of the rioters found they were mainly very young men, more unmarried than married, who'd mostly never been in trouble with the law before. They were carried along on a wave. They weren't only farm workers, but those uh, that we know about from the court records and who were transported were also listing rural trades or crafts as their occupation because those people were um, suffering from the poverty in the countryside from lack of custom. So it's a pauperisation of the countryside. The majority of them weren't thugs, but felt that their demands were reasonable and their grievances uh, genuine, and direct action was the way to be heard. So I have spent, personally, uh, hours perusing all the contemporary newspapers, and, uh, you know, it's sure that it was a very, very short time, but a very intense time, that the papers could hardly keep up reporting things to uh, several weeks in November, with hardly a village in Wiltshire untouched uh, at that time. So um, around Salisbury, almost all the threshing machines were burnt, and after firing a farm at Bishopstown, the mob tried to enter Salisbury to destroy an iron foundry, presumably casting, um, it was casting iron for machine parts, um, actually, they were accompanied by a load of blacksmiths because they were the ones who were seen as being, because they, they worked with metal, who were able to best destroy metal. Uh, they were stopped by Lord Arundel's division of the Yeoman Cavalry and they threw a, load, a hail of stones and the cavalry defended our city. It shut off the streets, the shops, and it protected the Guildhall where the magistrates were sitting. 
Um, the most notorious incident in uh, Salisbury, uh, in Wiltshire was at Pithouse Farm near Tisbury. So we've already just seen when we were talking about Charles Giles and all that land, we saw that uh, John Bennett had been a high uh, had been a sheriff of Wiltshire, and he was the landowner of uh, uh, where Pithouse Farm was. And it was there that one rioter was killed by the Yeoman Cavalry, but might be by an accident. And there was hand-to-hand fighting that broke out subsequently. Um, the rioters that were captured were, as many of them were taken to Salisbury Infirmary as the jail. And they said in the paper, blood was said to be trickling from the cart which transported them. So all these accounts of the swing riots all talk about pit house and they all talk about most intensive, uh, intensive riots all, o- uh, all over the country. But there's hardly any accounts that talk about Henry Wilkins. But I think he was the only person that ended up executed over them in, in Wiltshire. Because at the special commission, that's the government court set up um, that travelled round to judge the rioters, uh, all of those people who were judged um, death had their sentences commuted, including two who were left for execution and reprieved the evening before their execution to their great relief. So, there is um, a thing here where you can see that there's, there were a lot of re- uh, rewards offered at the time, and we've talked about the poverty that they had, so you can see that sums like £50, £500 to dob in your neighbour was very uh, very attractive. And I have looked through, actually, the records, the accounts, and generally those rewards were um, shared between huge groups of people because they'd all, been, they'd all seen the people. And there is on the right uh, um, an example of the swing message. So that is a, a book, but again, it's too faint. It's the special commission, but you c- I think you can just make out that it's, it says years on the the left that it's uh, the they got transportation. How long they got? And uh, on the right, um, there, there's a load of things about the people who were transported for, um, on a boat that's called... Uh, the, me- the most convicts that were transported were on a, one boat, the Eleanor. There are people who were transported on other boats, but that's where they mainly were. There's a great deal of literature following the lives of the people transported. You can see that all the records in the Salisbury Library, I think in a book by Jill Chambers, and I recommend that book on the right because although it is um, an academic book, it's fantastic reading, The Convicts of the Eleanor. But Wilkins, Henry Wilkins, let's go back to him. So he wasn't judged at the Special Commission. He was judged at the following assizes. Now, uh, he wasn't the only one. There was a handful of them. And all over the country, after the Special Commission courts, there was always a few that were afterwards judged at following assizes. I don't know why Henry Wilkins was left over.
So what, what did uh, he actually do? Well, he was an arsonist, and I have found something in the Hampshire newspaper of the 29th of November. His crime was, was burning down a cottage in Luggershall on the 28th of November. And the 29th of November, it mentions a spate of fires around Chute, which were thought to be the work of incendiarists rather than of honest countrymen. So if they're referring to Henry, who was lighting a spate of fires in that very same area, then Henry was considered a malicious arsonist intent on destruction rather than um, a, a real swing rioter. So the fire for which he was convicted was setting fire to South Park Farm, Luggershaw, uh, on the evening of the 28th of November. So by the time that one of the witnesses got there, the farm, the barn, the cart house, the stable were on fire, and a crowd of around 100 people were crowded round watching, but nobody went forward to try and put the fire out. So this was uh, called, uh, the crowd were um, described as a riotous assembly. The owner of the farm was a Mr. Perry, in, if you look in the reports on the internet, it says Peachy, but it's actually Perry. He was a great big landowner, and he might have been insured. Although, actually, all the farmers were running to the insurance companies to insure their farms against arson, and not surprisingly, the insurance companies wouldn't uh, insure them. So, um, so... It was Mr. Perry's tenant uh, at South Park Farm, Mr. Chandler, who lived in a farm uh, in a thatch cottage. And if there had been any political demands made of Mr. Chandler, there's no witness that says so or any report. Um, actually, Henry Wilkins made a, is overheard making a threat of a, uh, to farmers at nearby Fernham Dean, saying if they didn't lug out before morning, so that might be a demand for cash or drink. I'll save them the same as I'll serve them the same as I did Mr. Barnes at Chodderston. I'll set it all in flames, he said. Mr. Barnes had a barn, a barn full of oats, a mow wagon, a cart horse, two rollers burnt. So Mr. Chandler had a wife, and one report says seven children in the cottage, it was on this farm, and he rushed to extinguish the thatch mud wall which Wilkins had lit close to the eaves of the cottage, and with no success that way, under the eyes of the watching crowd, Henry went to the burning barn, brought back a glowing red-hot metal hinge from off the door, carried it to the, into the cottage between two sticks, and he was accompanied by several other persons. So other people who were there helped Chandler carry out his children and rushed to remove his possessions from the house just while Wilkins was setting about setting the cottage alight. So one imagines that uh, Chandler's wife and a servant who'd come out earlier to watch the barns burn uh, helped to get out as much as they could. Within 15 minutes, a light was seen through the window, then a wisp of smoke came through the thatch, and soon the whole house was in flames. Well, Henry Wilkins was locally well-known and instantly recognisable. So 
I can't, I can't find any records that anyone claimed a re uh, reward for dobbing him in, but uh, may, but somebody, so many people must have, that it was so obvious it was him. So amazingly, with this many witnesses and willing to stand up in court, Henry did try to plead innocence, <laughs> blaming the crime on others who had since absconded. Well, the jury didn't recommend him to mercy, as they did baby killer Charles Giles, who was ju judged at the same assizes by the same jury, um, because uh, they must have thought that, that goods and bonds and whatever were much more important than that poor little baby. That's what I think. So, the judge was Mr Justice Parks, who was, as always, very affected when he read the death sentence. He obviously was very emotional. So, incredibly, Henry Wilkins underwent a massive religious conversion in Fisherton Jail. So this is even more incredible because it's the same chaplain, Reverend Mr. Hodgson, who, who had made that converted Charles Giles almost the same week. So this man must have had a huge amount of charisma. So Reverend Hodgson, um, this actually is his real portrait in the middle. He was born in Leeds, so he probably had a Yorkshire accent, and he came south to go to Oxford University and married his wife Elizabeth in Calne in Wiltshire. So he, he started off by running a boys' boarding school in Castle Street before moving it to Salisbury Close, and, he mo uh, and that was um, in 1814. It was boys' school, so in Vickers Hall, and that's where um, he lived, Mr Hodgson. So as well as being chaplain of Fisherton Jail for many, many years, he lectured at St Thomas's Church and he was a minor canon of Salisbury Cathedral. His living was Kington St Michael, which is, um, I think, is it on the outskirts of Swindon? Chip. Chip. <laughs> Thank you, John. And that is a picture of it in the background. And he is buried in the cathedral, right nearly in the centre of um, the cloister, actually, I found yesterday. And on the right is a picture of his memorial, which is on the cloister wall. And so I think that he must have been a really incredible man. When you think of the things that these people lived through in the last days of their life on earth and in Fishton Jail, that he would have such an effect on these people. And it might be because he'd worked in a boys' school, and these are very young prisoners I've been talking about. And also he had children who were the same age as those prisoners. He might have had some... So being able to have some sort of affinity with them. He's certainly got the most lovely face, hasn't he, that you could see. And he, yeah, so it, it would be very interesting for me, I'd love to know if Henry Wilkins and Charles Giles actually met each other in Fisherton Jail in that time, whether they took Bible classes together or something, and whether they had an influence on each other, their their religious and religious conversion. But anyway, Wilkins confessed his crimes and he took to studying and meditating on the word of God and he passed his time in 
fervent and per persevering prayers for the uh, forgiveness of this crime but all the preceding crimes of his past life. And his family visited him in prison on the afternoon before his execution. His mother, four brothers and an uncle, and he lectured them sternly to read the Bible, not break the Sabbath, go to church and pray constantly, because he had derived all the comfort and consolation of his last days through prayer. And the leave-taking became then very emotional. His family would take his body back to be buried in the churchyard at Chute. One brother's wife was pregnant at the time, and as one Henry Wilkins of Chute died, another entered the world the same year. So that's the only family which seems to have wanted to continue the name of a hanged uh, sibling. And that uh, is the chaplain's daughter, Mary uh, Elizabeth King, and she actually married the vicar of the church at Stratford Subcastle. He had, he actually had five. I think he had five children, but they all they all had some went on to have some connection with the church. So Henry Wilkins knelt praying with the chaplain on the morning of his execution. He received communion from him, which he had particularly asked for. He preached to the other prisoners, lined up to see him off, and he climbed the scaffold, one might imagine, in a calm but exalted state. The crowd, who had felt cheated by the nearly instant death of Charles Giles the week before, got their show. Because of Henry's thick and muscly neck, he died with many convulsive um, struggles. So I won't keep you any longer, except to say that next time you see names and dates of people who died at St Paul's Roundabout, just remember they were all human beings with a story, and all their stories are part of our social history. Fact. Thank you very much, So, next time you're driving around that certain roundabout or walking through that certain roundabout, do keep in mind all the historical things you've heard tonight. Over to you, Rob. Um, any questions? Yes, hang on. Hang on. So I'll swap over. Who was the last guy executed at up there? William Wright, isn't it? I used to know a guy. Is it William Wright? I used to know a guy who swore that his grandfather was present at the last execution at Bishop and Jail. And he would have been, he died about uh, think 10 years ago, so he would have been in his 80s, uh, 90s. Uh, it's about 18, 1855, 55, is it? Yeah. 1855, I think it's William Wright who married his, uh, who murdered his wife, Anne Collins, as far as I remember. His grandfather, so it would have been his father's. Uh, 
It might be possible. Generations. I don't know if it ever was, but you just told me that my grandfather saw the. It's a horrible. It's a horrible story because I think William Wright tried to commit suicide the night before his execution, and he cut his throat, which was sewn up. And when he was hanged, the wound came open and sprayed the front row with blood. <laughs> Is there any more questions? <laughs> I thought she was making this up. I read it in a reputable book. You went to Halloween. Um, I've got a question. Um, Ruby. Yes. Was it the cousin of the Duke of Marlborough? The cousin of the Duke of Marlborough. <laughs> Who, uh, please, can you repeat the question? You said, was it the cousin of Duke of Marlborough? But who, who was the cousin? What was his name? But who? Was it the last, was oh, the execution? Ex- oh, the, the execution. Ah, not, not as far as I know, but I, I don't, I've only looked in depth at those four, and I haven't, uh, the other ones, I know something, I looked at, I looked at quite a lot of them, yeah. but I looked in particular depth just at those four, so I wouldn't know, I couldn't say uh, about a lot of the others. <laughs> Is it okay if I ask a question? Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> what, what are you having for tea tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, have you found any references to uh, people in Fishton Jail who may, may you know, prisoners that may have been well off, um, you know, having favours by the governor, or any references to them paying for their keep in Fishton Jail, therefore allowing them to have um, a better standard of incarceration than the other prisoners that were kept? Uh, yes, absolutely. And there's a question yet. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> they were kept underneath the ground. Did the more well-off prisoners have a better class of um, cell? Because we know that a lot of the cells were underneath the ground, dank cells. So that's the question. My, my, my study has, uh, I repeat, has been specifically on some case studies. However, when I was doing highwaymen, <laughs> you might remember I talked about some, uh, some highwaymen who definitely had a, a cushy time in in jail because they paid they they had you know they were able to wear their own clothes they had fabulous food they had uh, the people coming in to visit them loads of visitors and uh, you know i think i said you know someone like dick turpin in jail because it's still the same jail system ran up a bar bill of hundreds whilst in prison awaiting execution because that's the way things were but the people I'm talking about obviously uh, nothing like that at all no. do you have actually any ancestors from those people do you have any ancestors ah those no but my mum's sitting here my mum's got a couple of felons in the family so I suppose I might so 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 one of her uh, one of her ancestors was hanged outside uh, Dorchester Prison. I think he was probably the last person hanged in public at Dorchester Prison. Uh, and do you, I think there was another one that was transported to Virginia. No, no, there was a woman transported to Virginia. My yeah, next so question, my next question is, what sort of family am I married into? <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Right. Now you don't want to talk about not my ancestors, <laughs> well, well, well don't you? Uh, could you pass the mic and attack it later? Let's get back again. What was the time scale between the jail at the top of Gas Lane and the one just up the road there? Was it simultaneous or was this one later? Or? Um. What was the time scale between uh, the jail that was at Bishop? Uh, I think it's about, eight, I think it's about 1820 uh, that this one was built. Yeah, one one stopped and this one started. They didn't they didn't overlap. So the one up your throat, like uh, Gas Lane, was earlier. No, I don't mean Gas Lane. No, the, the prison was uh, Fishton Prison before. Is uh, was where the, you know where the clock tower is. You can still see yeah. one of the cells there. So it was there, but it took a huge area. And part of the infirmary, the original infirmary, um, had st had still used part of the old prison. And in fact, I think they used it as nice isolation wards there. So it was a big area there. And they stopped that prison because it was completely insalubrious, and they built this brand new prison here. And they didn't; the two didn't overlap. But there weren't two prisons here at Fish at, at this area. There was a police station, oh, Gas Lane police, police Station. Sorry, and they existed at the same time. If you look at the map, you can see the two on the map at the same time. Police station, prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah certainly. I was, I was just going to say it's about 1825, 1875 the jail here, something, yeah, something like it. that so they built the new one here um, because it's an all grand singing wonderful jail because the other one was so blinking awful but if you come on Saturday you'll hear more about that just, just saying um, well the George, the yeah. is it true there was a plague pit here? <laughs> well, George Fleming over here <laughs> told us all about recently about the plague pit at the Greencroft. Fisherton, I don't know if there was a plague pit here. I'm sorry, I don't know. I, I used to live in Greencroft Street, and so did my dad. When he was 18, he helped to dig the air raid slit trenches on the Greencroft in September 1938 during the Munich crisis. He never mentioned anything about any bones being found. Um, I remember excavations for pipes, water pipes, going across the Greencroft, and I keenly watched what was being dug up, apart from some bottle bases and bits of pottery, there were no bones. I don't think there were any plague burials uh, on the Greencroft. People would have wanted to have been buried in consecrated ground, not on the Greencroft. I think it's a, it's a lovely um, legend, but I don't think it's got any truth in it. What check, I, it's years since I encountered this, but I have a feeling that John Ivey, Mayor John Ivey, who stood his ground around the city during a bad plague in 1627, I think it was. Yep. I'm pretty sure Ivy describes overspill from St Edmunds being buried in Greencroft. But I'd have to go back and check that. Mm -hmm. And I've often wondered if they were, they were using Greencroft loosely and if there might be something over among the trees above the council office. Yeah. But certainly, um, I take practice of school kids on a walk down there and they love the horrible history of the, the plague. <laughs> but that's what struck me. I've seen a piece of film of those air raid trenches being dug Mm. And the, I thought there were the, there might just be slip trenches, but they weren't. They were proper deep things with 
overhead cover and that no record of anything ever having been found there. And there's another thing you see that traditionally, where there are plague pits, you're not allowed to do anything there. Because for centuries they didn't know what the plague was. And they were fighting for digging these people up, you know? So it, it's it's something worth worth looking into as the Greencroft plague pits, true or false, you know? Yeah. It's, this has got nothing to do with the prisons, but um, <laughs> but, 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 but actually, um, in my editorial, in the in the current uh, uh, informer, uh, in the journal 1939, when they were digging for the air house that you mentioned, the concrete sides, it does actually mention the plate pits were in the council grounds and the Greencroft. But 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 I was interested that when they were digging those to see if they found any bones. You know, in that area, and um, that's the question. So, if anybody can answer that question, it's got absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with prisons. But <laughs> uh, Jamie, you have to come over here. I was not hear you. This man knows all there is to know about plague victims and bricks. About everything. <laughs> um, I I don't disagree with what anybody said, but um, you're going to. No, I'm not. When when the um, Sorry, when, when the council was building, when Wyndham sold uh, what's now the council building, I've seen the deeds of, of, of for the council building and the Greencroft, which they sold at the same time, and the right to bury play victims was reserved in the Greencroft, and that sometimes suggests that that is something that happened there happened before, if that reservation is made. So I don't, as far as I know, no bodies have been found. But I think it's still in the air, basically. <laughs> I always had the impression that the bodies for, that were buried from the overspill from St. Edmund's Church were over one side of the Greencroft. So perhaps the, the council grounds first, and then encroached into the first part of the Greencroft. But it could be, could be wrong. But the interesting thing in the report in the Salisbury Journal from 1939 is that um, they actually say that as they were building these, these shelters, they were putting two foot of soil on top and putting grass seed on so the kids can continue playing in a green crop, which was what it was for in the first place. Yeah. So it was really interesting. Uh, sorry, Ruby. Uh, oh, yeah. Any more? Yes. How long has the bit bonfire been going in the Green Cross? Oh, well, it's George. You have to ask George. Uh, Ken can answer this. Uh, I, I actually used to go to the, uh, the Green Cross as a kid, and they had a concrete square there where every year had bonfire night, and a huge great... Uh, anything from settees to chairs were piled up there. But they also had the fire brigade there in case it got out of control. But you'll probably know better than me. Well, again, my, my dad remembers in the 1920s and 30s, um, the council would literally dump rubbish there to be burned. And he used to go through picking out books. Um, must be where I get it from. And um, I remember in the 60s, uh, bonfire night was absolute mayhem, because not only was the bonfire there, no sort of health or safety, of course, but everyone else was letting off their fireworks willy-nilly. So there were rockets flying every which way, <laughs> bangers being thrown, uh, and so on. Um, I don't know what casualties there were, there were probably some, but I mean, today, you know, people would have a fit 
Um, and I think that's why they, uh, they stopped using it, probably about 1970, and it became a much more organised event. Yeah. But, uh, plus the ring road didn't help. It always got burnt down before that anyway. <laughs> Two uh, weeks before the bonfire, somebody would always light it up. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they were just saying that uh, the, the Green Cross bonfire, someone, some bright spark, bright spark, some bright spark boys set fire to it in advance. But we're saying that probably from the 1920s, that's when the bonfire start first appeared there. Any more questions on the Green the, I'm sorry, I mean the, the gel? So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, just to show that there is no love rivalry between me and Frog for Ruby, <laughs> I would like everybody to put their hands together for a very, very good talk. And that was Ruby Vitorino Moody with Down Among the Dead Men, The Executions at Fisherton. We would like to thank Ruby for making this talk and the slideshow that accompanied it available to our listeners. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you'll find over 170 roundtable discussions, author interviews, guest speaker presentations, Whitechapel Society meetings and archive recordings all about Jack the Ripper, East End history and Victorian true crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our releases, feel free to contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast. <laughs>